Have you seen me dice bag? The Grognard Files Hello, my name is Dirk the Dice and this is the Grognard Files podcast where we talk bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day and today. I'm coming from my den here in the heart of the northwest of England. This is the second part of a two-part episode all about Dragon Quest. It's not so much a supplement, more like a half-hearted, dual-statted adventure produced after a corporate takeover. Dragon Quest was produced in 1980. We played the first edition back in the day, but more recently begun rediscovering the revised game from 1982. I've absolutely loved getting back into the game. I don't mind admitting that I struggled a bit at the first, leading someone to say, why are you doing this to yourself? There are newer games available, you know. But where's the fun in that? We've used the analogy of riding a classic car previously. It's a different experience. Your muscle memory might not be used to using a choke and without a clutch, the gearbox can be a bit clunky. But once you've mastered it, you have a unique experience. At once, it's a nostalgic time machine reminding you the way things used to work and why they were popular. But more importantly, It makes you appreciate the experience in identifying the elements that are innovative and different. That clutch didn't come from nowhere. It took experiments and small changes to get to an automatic gearbox. In play, the second edition of Dragon Quest is fairly simple. It's not a complicated game, but it does have lots of interesting elements to remember. And in the course of relearning how to run a game of Dragon Quest, I've fallen into a bit of a rabbit hole with it. It's not just the tacit weirdness that I enjoy. I realise that I like percentile games which use role quality to describe the result rather than a binary success-fail. Dragon Quest was one of the first games that introduced it as a core concept. Chris Klug joins us again to face the Games Master screen and tells us how this idea was further developed in Victory Games' James Bond role-playing game. He also explains how he was involved in the computer games industry and his joy at working with Chaosium after a lifetime of being inspired by the company. Following the first part of this episode, I was surprised by how few people had actually heard of the game, let alone have played it. So this time we have a slightly extended Judge Blythe rules to explain some of its key features. Blythe, our resident rules lawyer, exchanges his gavel for a place in the dock as I cast judgment on the game. The episode also introduces a new occasional segment, I'll Get Me Coat, where we give a brief exchange of something interesting that's caught our attention recently. Now, I do come dangerously close to a hot take about initiative in this section, but don't worry, 
I'll get over it. I'll be back at the end to visit the frontiers of Elusia and thank new patrons and old. Until then, ramblers, let's get rambling. Games Master Screen. Okay, uh, welcome to the Games Master Screen. I've got uh, Chris Klug with me. Hello there, Chris. Hello. Hello. Right, so I'm going to put this uh, screen between us. It's a, it's a Dragon Quest screen, actually. It's... Uh, I'll put that in front of us, and I'm going to roll on this table, apparently at random, and uh, pluck out some interesting topics to discuss from your career. Okay, here goes. Okay. Well, first off, it's a good score. I've got a zero one, which is a critical on this table, <laughs> and a critical for you must be the James Bond role-playing game. So, so talk about talk about that, and how that, how did that come about? Okay, so a group of us left SPI before the TSR takeover. Well, technically, two days after the TSR takeover. And I came along to do role-playing product. That was clearly my niche. And we had a brilliant marketing guy named Jerry Glickenhaus, who was in charge of selling games, obviously. He was, you know... The marketing guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I really count him as one of my most important mentors in the game industry because he taught me a lot about how to deliver a game that would sell. And he said, I want to do a role-playing game, but I don't want to do it to directly compete with Traveler, d and I want to do something in an area that hasn't been done yet. And we looked at various genres and one that came up was spies. And he might have known someone who knew someone at MGM. That might have been how this worked. And he said, let me see if I can get the Bond game. And I was like, whatever. I I wasn't at the time a particularly huge Bond fan. I mean, you know, okay, it was nice, but whatever. Um, And he got it. And so that's what became the first, well, and only role-playing game that Victory Games ever did was because Jerry Glickenhaus was looking for a role-playing game in a genre where there'd be no competition. I apologize to fans of Top Secret, but as far as we know, it wasn't selling all that much. And it certainly didn't have a license attached to it. And it was really grittier than Bond is. Bond is more of a fantasy. And so we went with Bond. That's how it came about. And uh, we covered it in uh, some detail in our episode uh, 15. And what we pointed out at the time was the innovations uh, that it made mechanically. Uh, so you know, many many of them have uh, gone on to influence games uh, ever since. So, uh, did did you just start with a, a blank slate with this? And uh, what 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 were some of the design decisions that you made when doing this? Yeah, um, design decision number one. It was about stories, and all all of Bond's activities really served the narrative. And if you've listened to the episode where I talked about my roots, that's the kind of games I ran. I wasn't trying to design a simulation of combat. I wasn't trying to design a simulation of race car driving. 
I was trying to design a game where moments in the movies could be realized on the tabletop. And when I think when you're alluding to, in retrospect, what Bond brought to the hobby, it's that. That I wasn't designing from a simulationist point out. I was designing from a narrative point of view inward. So everything was on the table. Why do hit points? What are hit points? You're shooting each other with Walther PPKs. Hit points? Makes no sense. What are levels? Levels don't matter, etc. right? So we would go through all of the tropes that tabletop games brought with them, and we would ask, do we need this to do Bond or not? The other thing I think worth mentioning is there was a little teeny tiny mechanic in Dragon Quest that I ripped off, and it was the foundation of the entire system. Well, a combination of two mechanics. The first mechanic was that Dragon Quest did this thing where you could take a character's characteristic value, multiply it by an integer from one to five, and establish a percentile number, and then you'd want to roll that or less. And the integer was based on how easy the thing was to do. And if you look at modern game design, that difficulty challenge idea, only they're not doing multiplication, is everywhere. That that you're saying, if this is really tough, you're going to multiply your characteristic by one or a half. If it's easy, you're going to multiply your characteristic by five. I did that because it was a way you could base everything on characteristics and the whole thing would scale for almost any situation. And the other thing I took was this idea that if you rolled low, you would do better. And it wasn't binary. It wasn't success or failure. It was the idea that if you rolled low, uh, better things would happen to you. And so I came up with this quality rating idea and I let the success chance go beyond a hundred. It could go really high so that if you went really high, the boundaries of what the best result would be would grow. That, that's an idea I first saw in RuneQuest. And, and, and so when you put those two things together, right, you get a system that's scaled, right? You could have Bond and a schlump in the same universe because Bond would be rolling at, you know, 150 or plus, 150 plus, and he'd be getting all quality rating ones and twos whereas the slump would be rolling against 35. And for him to get a quality rating one would almost be impossible. That's sort of like systemically where it was, was, and I, you know, Eric Smith, a colleague of mine at Victory uh, has often said to me, he remembers the moment when I came up with that idea, he and I were driving to Antietam, a civil war battlefield. And he and I were talking design in the car. And literally, he said, so what's your idea about Bond? And I said, here's what I'm thinking, right? And literally, it came out in that discussion. And the, the basic Bond system was designed on the drive to Antietam. 
Um, so uh, hats off to Eric Smith for uh, encouraging me in that direction. And so it's a combination of designing to fit the narrative and using as simple a die mechanic as I possibly could. Right yeah. now, you look at the die system today, and it's complicated. Today, they would use some sort of fate. I would use some sort of fate system, probably. <laughs> yeah. But fate didn't exist at the time. So. Yeah. Yeah, and and, and with that uh, quality uh, result, you also, uh, as you've mentioned, you had that idea of an opposed role as well, didn't you? So you're opposing yeah. your quality against somebody else's quality. Right. Right. And that. You know, that yeah. Um, that all sits. Well, that sits in the idea that it always struck me weird in D&D that the defender was powerless. Yeah, there were modifiers. Yeah, I'm wearing armor. Yeah, I'm protected by magic. But here I am swinging a sword at you, and it feels like you're just standing there. So I wanted to try to find a way to give the defender something active to do and the other uh, innovation that uh, strikes me uh, when we were playing it was the uh, chase rules and i believe oh. that uh, ken height has acknowledged that he was influenced by those rules for knights black agents of uh, kind of uh, having a blind bid on uh, on, on, on on how fast you're going to go and uh, yeah i mean that's that. That's Greg Gordon. Greg had just come out of school. He was a tester on Dragon Quest. That's how I met him. And he had written some kind of analysis of Dragon Quest. I can't remember exactly what he'd written. He And, and when I started on Bond, I asked him whether he wanted to play test. And he play tested it for a month before he could reveal to his players what the system was. <laughs> designed for because we hadn't signed the deal yet but we had begun play testing it already greg wrote the q manual greg did a lion's share of work on the game and when we were kicking around what the chase system had to do he said he had some ideas for it and i said go to town and he came up with that whole bidding the quality rating mechanic which was inspired Mm. Um, so it would be remiss of me not to fully give Greg credit for the chase system. And the products that they produced, uh, Victory, to support uh, the line, fantastic. I mean, I've got them on my uh, bookshelf. You know, the box sets uh, uh, supporting the films were fantastic. It must have been really good to work on those. Avalon Hill was very supportive to try to do those products in as high quality as was possible. I was very influenced at the time by the box products being produced by Chaosium, Pavis, Big Rubble. Lots of handouts, lots of bits of paper, beautiful maps, and they were my exemplar for the right way to do an adventure. D&D at the time was doing staple bound books inside a cover and so everything had to be inside that stapled bound folder thing i learned through avalon hill why that's the way d and my tsr did it because it's easier to ship product that way it's harder to ship a box of stuff with pieces in it because a human being has to assemble it 
And Avalon Hill really educated me about the a way to do that, which is why those original ones had that tray because it needed pieces and a place to put the pieces so you could shrink wrap it, stuff like that. But I know that people still talk today about all the bits that got in, in those adventures and how they aided the GM. And they're in there because that's the way I GM. I don't mean to keep hammering that. They're there because I would hand my players pieces of paper. It's, it's a common thing. But like if I had a message that one of the NPCs was giving to one of the characters, I would get out construction paper and I would write in calligraphy pens and I would burn the corner of it and it would become a prop. Everybody at my gaming table understood prop. That's how I thought about all of that. I'm handing them a picture. I hand, I'm handing them. I mean, I do this now in my Roll20 campaigns. I did this thing. I'm nuts. I'm just nuts. I did this thing about a month ago where an NPC had a document that they had written, and I decided that their handwriting was going to be hard to read. So I searched the internet for a handwriting font that was hard to read. Um, <laughs> and I delivered the document to the player that way. And they were like, what is this? And I said, her handwriting is hard to read. And they just cursed me and like, you know, <laughs> um, but again, it's, you know, for people, you had asked this question about Dragon Quest. Um, for people who want to feel like they are there, right? Mm -hmm. I, as a player, want to go there. Uh, when I played in my friend's D&D uh, &D campaign, I played an Elf Ranger you're like, how many people have played Elf Rangers? There's a long line. And his house was about two miles from my house. I would leave, you know, my house. I'm 22 at the time, 23. So it's not like I didn't have a car. And I would put my sweatshirt on and I'd walk my house to his house. Why? Because I was getting in character. So I'm that guy who wants to live there. Let's, uh, let's roll again on the table. Okay, and this is a, a 15. And this is not tabletop role-playing, but this is uh, computer role-playing games because you right. had a long uh, career in uh, working in that industry. I first started to work in that industry because of my tabletop designs. I worked on the first version of uh, Europa Universalis, which was based on a tabletop game. It's gone through five or six editions since, but I worked on the first one. And then I did a tabletop-inspired role-playing game called Aiden Chronicles for the N64. And I borrowed heavily from Dragon Quest. The system in that game borrows really heavily from Dragon Quest. And on that game, I'm particularly proud of the narrative. Um, I wrote it for prime demographic for the N64, which was 14-year-old boys. And I wrote a story which essentially is, uh, is written to me when I was 14. And it's 20 years ago now. I still hear from those 14-year-old boys who are now 
34, 35, and they talk at length about how much that story meant to them. Yeah, it, uh, that in some ways, it's not a game system, but it might be my the work I'm most proud of as a designer. Um, and that that moment 20 years ago is when I sort of really began to think of myself as a writer who happens to work in games as opposed to a game designer who happens to write a little bit. But I'm very proud of that game. Yeah. I suppose that's uh, something I appreciated that it is a great way of getting narrative, isn't it, to a wide audience in a very interactive way. Probably it's unique in that in that sense. Um, I think that there are stories that you can't tell any other way. Film and theater and TV are great mediums for storytelling, clearly. Um, but there are some stories that exist best in a game environment. And you worked on the um, Stargate yeah. world, didn't you? Yeah, I did. There's a game that I, I want to mention briefly in between Aiden and yeah, Stargate sure. called Earth and Beyond from uh, EA. Um, I love MMOs, partly because you're playing with other human beings, but there's a, a real opportunity to tell stories in MMOs. And Earth and Beyond is another game I'm particularly proud of because we told an interactive story in an MMO. Um, and in 2001, 2002, we were pushing what now is called downloadable content. Uh, we were updating the story in chapters to the audience. And it was the most successful part of that game was the story. Just really proud of the work my writing team did. I didn't write that story. I, I guided the team that did uh, manage them. I was creative director by then, but I'm really proud of the story that we came up with and how we approached telling the story for that game. And then because of that, I got, oh, well, Earth and Beyond, I got hired because of Bond, because one of the people on the hiring committee was a big Bond fan. <laughs> anyway, but Stargate, I got because I had done Earth and Beyond. Uh, that was interesting because my goal with Earth and Beyond before it launched was to tell a story that would exist both in television and in the game at the same time. EA had a potential deal with sci-fi network that if earth and beyond had gone above a certain subscription base, they were going to like launch a television series. <laughs> I don't know whether the deal was inked, but there were, I'm, I was in meetings where we were discussing that now on Stargate, the TV show existed already. And there we were going to do that same thing where there was going to be the game that was live and the TV show that was live. Um, and there, once again, my theater training sort of came into focus because the head writer of the TV show hated what games had done to the Stargate universe. And what I mean by that is every game that had been done ended up being a shooter. And he was like, but that's not what the show's about. And they would go, uh-huh. And they would do a shooter. So, well, he couldn't have picked a better person to do this because I'm back in my script analysis classes in undergrad. 
Mm -hmm. right? I can do this. I know exactly how to do this. So uh, I watched about seven episodes. It's all I needed. Because uh, at that point, there were 140 or some crazy number. And because I knew television and I knew television structure, I knew which episodes to look for. I didn't have to, like, guess. And I wrote a 24-page analysis of the show. And four days before I was supposed to fly to Vancouver, I mailed him the, emailed him the analysis. And I show up and the whole writing staff is in the room. And he's not there yet course because he has to make a dramatic entrance and he walks into the room and you know he's got the document in his hand right and it's dog-eared and he's got those colored tabs and stuff is underlined and circled which meant he read it and he threw it down on the table and he said all right let's start because all i had done was told him what he already knows that it's a character-driven show that uses science fiction as a means to tell emotional stories about the four of them. And if you think about the show, it's a buddy show that happens to take place in a science fiction universe. So, so how do you go about drawing that out into a game? I mean, oh, well, it's, it's an MMO, right? Um, so there are certain expectations of an MMO. There are classes, right? Uh, and each class can do something different, blah, 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 blah. But you need to give the scientist and the soft skills something to do. And this is 2007, so six. So World of Warcraft had come out. So everybody is chasing World of Warcraft at the time. And I decided that the way to do what you're talking about was to write a story in which the ways to solve some chunk of problems, not all the problems, but some chunk of the problems involved either interpersonal skills or puzzle solving or like that, right? Mm -hmm. that, that you couldn't just shoot your way through the whole experience. That there were nodes in the matrix of missions that could only be solved by the scientist. And that if your party didn't have a scientist, now I'm simplifying yeah. in, a, in a gross kind of way, but that's the idea. The story we told involved a lot of personal challenges for the player, dilemmas that the player sort of had to make an important choice about. Um, so it was less combat, more interpersonal skills. That's how we tried to do that. And the, the real issue, I think from Brad's, Mr. Wright, Brad Wright was the showrunner. I think from his perspective was not so much how do you deliver a character-driven show in an MMO. It was more do you see what we're trying to do and will you respect that? Instead of just focusing on blam, 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 right? Because he was fine with there being combat in the game. That wasn't his issue. His issue was, I want you to look deeper than just the laser guns. Okay, let's go to the table one last time. And that's uh, 21. So it's uh, 2021 and it brings things up to date. 
And I believe that you've been recently doing some work with new KRCM. So you mentioned KRCM earlier, and you've got opportunities yeah. to work with them. Well, uh, I'm, I'm at work on a number of different projects. Uh, the one that is published was an adventure that I did, Smoking Ruins. I think that it's, <laughs> it is, in many ways, for me personally, and I have to preface this by saying I never got to write a Dragon Quest adventure. I mean, that one that was an audition was, I don't count that, even though it is when you look back on it, sort of a, a, a really traditional adventure for me. Um, but I never got to write something that had some meat to it. It was That was short, right? 10 pages or five, eight pages or something like that. This, I really got to write a story that I think can only take place in Glorantha, which was part of my goal, was to write a story that relies on the way Glorantha works. Because for me, my opinion, um, when you've got an, an IP that is as powerful as Glorantha, if you're going to write an adventure that could take place in Forgotten Realms, wonderful world, Forgotten Realms, then I think you're doing a disservice to Glorantha um, because I think that that world has an internal logic to it. And because it's a world of mythology, I was really trying to write something that addressed the legend of the courtship between Orlanth and Arnalda. That was a really inspirational moment for me when I read that that narrative. And so even though the gameplay of the adventure doesn't really address that, um, what I was hoping to do with a Smoking Ruin was have that be sort of a kicking off point for other adventures, because there's a sort of a, um, a loose end in that adventure as it's written, where the GM could follow that loose end and it would lead to another adventure. But I wanted the crucial moment to not be combat oriented. I wanted to use performance skills. So one of the climactic moments, oh, I might not, I shouldn't, it's a spoiler. <laughs> one of the climactic moments isn't combat. Um, that's what, pretty... What, 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 what is striking about it is it's very character driven, isn't it? I yes. think uh, the way... No, no, yeah, so... Um, I mean, yes, you might have to fight, um, right? I think the combat system in Glorantha is, in RuneQuest, is a wonderful combat system. I enjoy it personally mm -hmm. quite a bit, um, but I wanted this adventure to be solvable without going to combat, and so it, it, it isn't. Mm -hmm. um, and it was designed to partly introduce new players to Glorantha, so you meet a dragon nude and like all these, you meet yeah. ducks, right? All these things that like are sort of unique to Glorantha. I wanted to put into the adventure so that by the end of it, the players would react. This is different, right? Mm -hmm. This is not the same kind of fantasy world that I'm used to. So that was part, partly my goal. Am I right in thinking that you've been attached to the revision of Dragon Pass? Well, that's I. I have a version of that game. Um, it's probably in a second 
revision. Chaosium will probably decide at some point to publish it, but I don't know when. That's something that's something to look forward to. Yeah, no, that that was lovely because it got me back into my roots as a board game designer. And I, I showed it to Sandy Peterson at one point. And Sandy said, boy, you're old school, aren't you? This feels like a war game. I'm like, uh-huh, because yeah. I love war games. Lots of things uh, still to uh, look forward to from you, uh, Chris. And it's been great speaking to you over these uh, past couple of uh, episodes. So thank you very much for that. Okay, sure. Happy to do it. Glad you asked. Just bloody rules. Welcome to the Zoom of role-playing rambling. I'm in here with Blythe. Hello there, Blythe. Hello, Dirk. It's been a while that we've talked to each other like this. I mean, just had like a conversation. I've seen you as a psionic cyclops from outer space. As I've seen you ancient, as a giant, a giant farting slug. I've seen you as an ancient Egyptian eternal guardian. Same. Well, you're not ancient. You're an Egyptian. Where you were kind of Victorian medicine woman, weren't you? I bring. I raise my farting slug with your stinky the dog handler. In mutant year zero, yeah, year stinky zero. the dog handler. Yeah, and his spores, his mutant spores. Good mutation. That when, when I first rolled it, I wasn't so sure, but. Good. I'm not actually seen you as Judge Blythe Blythe. You, yeah. this, the, the real you, the real you, not some contrived podcast persona. No, it is the real me, of course it is. Uh, yeah, we haven't seen each other. It's, it, in in time of recording in the UK, it is, it's been 12 months, hasn't it, from uh, lockdown. This time last year, we were being advised, weren't we, to avoid pubs? And the dog is a pub unless absolutely necessary. I'm afraid it is absolutely necessary. <laughs> we were going to record this, weren't we? We were going to record this, so what? Yeah, that's absolutely necessary. And uh, we're in the room of role-playing rambling to look at Dragon Quest. And Dragon Quest is a game that we played quite a lot back in the day, in the early uh, time, didn't we? It was your game, wasn't it? I bought it at Northern Games Day. It was the third game. It was my third game. The third game I ever bought. I bought Traveller, I bought Stormbringer, and then I bought Dragon Quest. I felt very pleased with myself because it was slightly exotic. I don't think we knew much about it, did we? If anything, really. It just looked good. It's not like you to take such a risk, is it, to choose a game that you knew very little about? You say you, you say that, but did, did we know much about any of these games back in the day? Andy slacking White Dwarf for giving it a seven or something. That's that's about all we knew anyway, isn't it? So you say it was a gamble. He's just as much a gamble as anything else, wasn't it? He's much as much a gamble as Traveller. This weird black box with, what's this? You just thought, well, it'd be okay. It'd be a role-playing game. It looks, the cover looks exciting. It looks good. It wasn't that expensive. It was a bo- I think it was the box set I got as well. And you think, oh, that's all right. It was always a gamble back then. It was, it was very attractive. And I think that's, the thing that we miss now you know we've talked before haven't we about how you know over lockdown we've been doing retail therapy and buying books and i think it's something about trying to recapture the residual feeling that must be inside you of the excitement of getting that box you know back in uh yeah 1982 1983 whenever it was when you buy things now you you want to try and tap into that excitement I think when I bought Dragon Quest, though, it it was partly, as a lot of these purchases were back in the day, fueled by the, or informed by, the Prime Directive, wasn't it? Because there weren't that many games available. 
and couldn't buy D&D because Simon had it. Couldn't buy RuneQuest because you had it. So it was like a fantasy game. It looked like a fantasy, like a it looked like a standard fantasy game. So if, unlike Stormbringer, which had a particular setting, it looked like a, a fantasy game that you could just do possibly any kind of fantasy scenario with. No one's got this, so I can I can have it. I better get it before someone else gets it. I have this theory. I have this theory that the th- everybody remembers the third game. The third game is the important one because you've reached the point where you've committed to the hobby and that you're going to be a gamer and that's what you're going to do. You've got the standards so that you're now moving on to something a little more different and it's a more considered decision. And I tested this theory on Twitter and Facebook. Who remembers the third game? Very few people did. So my theory was blown out of the water. But I was struck struck by a couple of things. First thing is how many people had Traveller as the third game, which is understandable, isn't it, really? Because you think, oh, D&D, then AD&D, and then move on to a science fiction game. Yeah, move on to science fiction from fantasy, yeah, yeah. And I um, suppose it was a little bit, uh, Traveller was always a little bit intimidating, wasn't it? It, it was a bit of a black box and austere quality to it didn't it as if maybe you'd only i mean rather i mean i suppose i bought it as my first game but but we'd already played RuneQuest, hadn't we so it wasn't really a first first game was it it was kind of like a second game almost quite a few people had dragon quest as their third game there's no science involved in this it, i just asked the question on twitter don't go <laughs> writing phds on the back of it. yeah no no people's third game I don't, I don't know whether your theory is blown out of the water though that you say people remember the third game because by then they've committed to the hobby, but maybe people don't remember the third game because by then they've committed to the hobby and there will be a fourth and fifth game and therefore you don't stop at three. Once you're buying a third game, you're not going to stop at three and therefore you can't remember your third game because it could have been your fourth or your fifth because once you get a third game, you that's it, you're done for. You're in the hobby and you're going to keep on buying them. This was one of those games that I think I enjoyed more than you. You used to run the game, and very often th- this game we used to do one on one. Yeah, it's a very, it's been a very odd one, I think, for for us this one because when we decided to look at Dragon Quest, I could remember very little about it in terms of it was often you know I can remember about these things and how they played and what we did with them. I can't remember much until looking at the rules again and playing it again. Even when we played it again, I thought it didn't come flooding back, and I, I don't know why. That's that's never happened with any other game. I do not know why. I have a theory. I have a theory. Do you want me to present the theory it's now? It's another theory. Be like, go on. Well, you've, you've presented one theory. Let's go for, go for another. I have a theory that because the rules, as we uh, we look, we'll come to look at, there's quite a lot of them. There's quite a lot of rules. It's one of those yeah. games with lots of spot rules. And as we'll come on to explain, it is quite difficult because of the house style that SBI had it's quite difficult to extract the meaning of the rules. And I think the reason why you can't remember how you play them is that you adopted a vague approximation of what the rules actually are. Yes. Yes. You're probably right there. Because I I have to say, when I looked at the rules again recently, I thought, how did 13-year-old me cope with this? Because 53-year-old me, with, with a couple of degrees behind him, Looked at it and thought, "Oh, oh God, 
But a 13 year old me jumped in, apparently. Or maybe he didn't, as you say. Maybe he didn't. I'm thinking a little 13 year old by genius sat there in Bolton gobbling up these rules that this 53 year old idiot looks at and thinks, oh, God, I can't cope with this. Because there are, there are things in it that are a bit, I, I, what's interesting, and I'm sure we'll talk about this, there are bits in it that are very room questy. And I think I latched on to those elements of it and disregarded lots of the other bits that are not very requested, quite quite difficult. Certainly remember looking at the bits where it talks, it does talk in quite a lot of detail about miniatures and positioning on hex, hexagonal maps, doesn't it? And flanking and where the rear is, where the flank is, all this kind of thing. And I, I do, one thing I do remember is ignoring that. I do remember looking at that and thinking, well, we've stopped playing with figures because, we, as we said before, we stopped playing with figures quite early on. Uh, and all this, I thought, oh, the flanking, well, the flank position, I'm not doing that. Forget that. So, yeah, I think you're right. I think that is exactly it. Yeah, I ignored bits of it. <laughs> yeah. You had the um, setting of Frontiers of Lucia. Well, I say it's setting. It's really just a map, isn't it? A hexagonal map an unexplored area for you to set adventures in. Um, and I remember, I, I, I do remember us using that map and going from Citadel to Citadel, because although you don't get a setting with Dragon Quest, what I like about it is that there is certainly an implied setting. It's yeah. a very strong swords and sorcery setting. And yeah. Um, you, you can feel it, you know. You can you, you can feel that in the way that it presents itself, the magic and the combat. And I think it makes no bones about it that it is a simulationist game. It wants to, I think Chris Klug said in his interview, to simulate what it would be like living in a medieval fantasy setting. And I think that's what it tries to do, and we can talk about how it goes about doing that. But I think it is very much a, a, a simulationist game. Yeah, yeah, there, there is a lot of that kind of thing in it. I do think, I've been interesting about Dragon Quest is, I think, you, if you don't mind me saying so, that you've become mildly obsessed with it, haven't you, over recent months? I have, yeah. <laughs> for reasons, for reasons better known to yourself. We don't, we don't have to go into them. You've become obsessed with it. But I'm bemused by it. I am bemused by it. We've looked, we've spent a lot of time doing these podcasts. We've looked at a lot of old games and we've played them. We've dug them out and we've played them because, you know, the theory that you can't really talk about until you've played it and we've we've had to refresh our memories and that. But you you have become slightly fixated with Dragon Quest. I don't (laughs) know why. To to that end, to that end, I think we should should turn the tables in this... uh, in, in this section, and it should be Dirk rules. I think I think you should do the three rules because for oh. me it's just a bit of a blank. <laughs> <laughs> I can take and leave it, but with you, you become fixated with it. So, I don't know. If, I don't know. If something with lockdown. I don't know. I want to assess your mental state, but well, I have been playing it. I have been playing in uh, Colin Spears's game for in six months now, yeah. and. I've got a character in there, Dran the White. We've encountered things you wouldn't believe uh, on those lawn and level sands, I tell you. And But you're right, I have become 
slightly obsessed with it because I do think it's a fascinating game in that the innovations that are there. We've talked before, haven't we, about how some of these early games were really trying out ideas and pushing ideas. And you can see the pedigree where this has come from, from uh, a war game manufacturing company in that, as you say, there's rules on flanking and tactical positioning and all that kind of thing. But I also think there's little bits in it. We say that it's uh, RuneQuesty, and it is because it's a percentile-based system, but it's probably closer to Stormbringer. It doesn't have hit locations uh, for combat. The way that combat works is similar to um, Stormbringer because you can have major wounds and yeah. you know you can end up with um, you know rolling on a critical table, a grievous wound table, which is similar to the critical table in uh, Stormbringer. So there are some similarities with um, Stormbringer. I think there's that bit of it, but it also brings in elements from other games as we'll go on to see um from, from the time so you're you, what you're saying is you're passing over the mantle of mm. judge Blythe. i think me. i will yeah i think that's what i'm gonna do i want, right. I want three thought three rules from you and i want a, a duff rule uh, one thing you don't like that's what i want from you this well your honor don't, I, don't, don't always come to me don't always come to me <laughs> yeah have this have this well-fingered gavel <laughs> hands face face hands gavel. face face clean gavel yeah <laughs> obsessed with you need to get out of your system and move on I think yeah because I'm not playing it again okay <laughs> I remember playing I remember playing this with a long running character that I had and as I said play on me on it was like a Conan thing it was mm. called Snaggletooth wasn't it that's right yeah a, a yeah. rubbish name rubbish on, on the list Relatively short list of terrible character names. It's not quite the worst that anyone's ever come up with, but it, it's certainly in the top ten. In the top <laughs> ten. Heather's to Murgatroyd. <laughs> I, I wanted someone to uh, reflect its, uh, you know, his kind of guile and uh, in wiry strength and snaggletooth. It seemed a good idea at the time. Yeah. <laughs> Rubbish. So. I, I'm the judge for this then. Okay. I'll I think, yeah. So I want, come on, I want three right. three good, exciting, innovative rules that you like about this game. Okay. Let's, uh, let, let me uh, think of something. Hang on. It's hard, isn't it? <laughs> see what you've seen. You just want to make it clear. Hard, isn't it? People <laughs> think, oh, sidekick. Oh, easy. <laughs> Robin to his Batman. Yeah. It's hard, isn't it? Anyway, carry on quickly. All right. Okay. So I'm going to go for, um, Fatigue and endurance, and how they work. Okay, fatigue. Let's do it properly because what, what happens is that you repeat what I've said. So I'm going to do it like you do. Fatigue <laughs> and endurance. Fatigue <laughs> and endurance. Right. Okay. Off putting that, isn't it? Go on. <laughs> I, f- I feel old scores being settled there. The second one, uh, I'm going to go for character creation. Character creation. Mm, I, don't think, I don't think I've ever been that. Of that broad, but anyway, go on. <laughs> the third one, I'm going to go for the colleges of magic. And colleges, that's colleges <laughs> of magic. Colleges of magic. <laughs> and what what thing do you not like about it? I'm going to mention rank. I think rank is rank. You both, don't like that. You don't both, like rank. Okay. 
for a particular reason. Okay. All right. Come on so well, let's let's go. Let's go to the first choice: fatigue and endurance. Fatigue and endurance. Bear in mind when uh, this uh, was released, I think it is how, how the combat works is fairly similar to uh, reinquesting that it's a blow by blow thing. You don't you don't actually parry. You reduce your attack by your defense to get a strike chance, and you need to roll under it on a, a d hundred. And it does have a quality of results in a similar way as basic role playing. So you can have uh, a normal hit, you can have a a, um, a special hit. So if you take fifteen percent below um, your target number. Uh, sorry, 15, 15% of your target number, then the damage goes off endurance. And your endurance is really your core uh, hit points, really. Mm-hmm. Your endurance gets to zero, then you are out for the count, you're dead. And and there's also the uh, grievous uh, wounds as well, which is like a critical hit, which is uh, 5% of the uh, target amount. So if you roll, you roll that... So the way that it works is you have these two uh, bags of hit points, if you like, your fatigue and your endurance. And mm-hmm. normally you start reducing your fatigue uh, first. And once that's depleted, you move on to uh, your endurance. I just really like how it has the death spiral. You know, and, and as soon as you start cutting into your endurance, things start to happen. And if you take a blow that's over a certain amount, you might be stunned and have to roll against your willpower. And I, I just think it, it's it's clever how it's got those two tracks, those two elements to a character, rather than you know, as we said with hit points, you can get down yeah. to one hit point and uh, you're still standing until that final blow. Yeah, the, the idea that there's two two sides to it. So fatigue, you can be battered around, be fatigued, but you're not actually taking a physical wound yet. Then you've got endurance, so you could keep your fatigue, but a couple of bad hits are actually going to be physical wounds. It did. That is quite an interesting concept. When we played, I did think that's it makes the idea of damage a little bit more nuanced, doesn't it? In some ways, you can learn a lot about a game and its its attitude towards simulation when it comes to healing rates. I think. It's always yeah. very telling. Of a sandwich, back to full hit points. Yeah, have a sandwich and an apple. Yeah, yeah you've been reduced to one hit point by some dragon. But now you're fine. Maybe in the context of heroic cinematic fantasy, that might be quite appropriate. But that's not what this is doing, is it? This isn't doing that. It's, it's trying to simulate a world. Just give me a moment while I find the... Grievous wounds table. I'm going to give you some examples. Have you got a D100 there? Yeah. yeah. Seven. D100. I've rolled a seven. Zero, seven. That's very low, isn't it? So is, is low good? High bad? It, we'll find out. Oh, no. Exclamation mark. Your opponent's mm-hmm. weapon has entered your secondary arm's elbow joint and the tip has broken off. Take two damage <laughs> points immediately from endurance. And that arm is useless until the silver has been removed by a healer of rank three or above. Also, increase the chance of infection by 30. So that's the other thing, that it may not be the combat that kills you. It may be the chances of infection. And I I remember characters being killed by infection. So that's that's a seven. Well, they get worse. Well, I was just thinking, I thought if I'd roll a seven, I'd be okay. And I'll roll again. 49, that's in the middle, isn't it? 49. Somewhere in the middle, 49. 
a slash along one arm and it's a bleeder. Take two damage immediately from endurance and lose one point from fatigue. Endurance when fatigue is exhausted. Sorry, it, I don't know that. Well, Keep out of it, you. <laughs> and, then, and then it says here, uh, so you're going to bleed out in each pulse until the bleeding stopped by a healer of rank one or above or you will die. Ooh. So they, right. they, they are very brutal. Uh, what, what, if I, what if I roll? What if I roll a ninety? Let's roll a ninety. A high. Let's, we've rolled high. What happens if a ninety? Come on. If they get progressively worse. I dread to think what a ninety is. Your right hip is smashed horribly. Take five damage points immediately to endurance and fall prone. You'll be unable to walk until the damage is healed. It takes about six months. Good fun. Ooh. When healed, you will have a limp, which will reduce your uh, movement rate by one and your agility by two. See, you see, I, I do. I, I say I don't remember much about this game, but I think I do remember the grievous wounds. I think whenever we've talked about Dragon Quest in the past, you know, privately, whatever, whenever it's cropped up in conversation, well, one thing we always remember is grievous wounds. I do remember that. But I, I remember feeling slightly awkward about it as a games master because they are just so debilitated, so bad. They're so debilitated. I don't see where the fun is in that, that if you're hit with a sword, you know, yeah, of course you're going to get a nasty wound. I mean, the, the injuries from these weapons in, re in reality would have been horrific, wouldn't they? You know, but I don't see the fun of it from a role-playing perspective because what, what you forget is, what we always forget, not forget, but or gloss over, is the fact that RuneQuest has kind of brutal combat as in you know you can you know lose a leg or, or get your leg injured and you're on the floor and all that kind of thing but RuneQuest has healing spells in, in abundance doesn't it i mean almost every adventure you you meet has healing two at least healing two and people are always kind of stacking up to get healing six so you can reattach a limb so it's not as brutal it's not really as brutal RuneQuest is brutal in a fight but the after effects can be sorted out fairly quickly yeah. with magic. I, I'm not sure. And I do have a vague memory of this, of reading those grievous wounds and thinking, Ooh, are, are you going to react to this? If well, so you six, gonna, six, six you, months to heal. I tell you, I'm going to react to this. I'm going to get all cross and uh, upset about it and bear a grudge for 30 odd years. Cause I think Snaggletooth, it's still a rubbish name, isn't it? Snaggletooth fell into a pit onto some spikes mm, yeah. and got a grievous wound. Yes. Yeah. And because I was playing on my own, there's no way out for him. Yes. <laughs> I think you're right. Yeah. I say, yeah, it very much depends on you've got some comrades who can get you out of a sticky spot. If your hip gets crushed or something, because otherwise <laughs> you just had it, haven't you? Yeah. 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 For all I know, he might still be down there. He might have had his, uh, you know, <laughs> Is the appropriate level of rest. I think you're right. I, 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 yeah, I think coming back to me now, because I think that's that was the awkwardness of that character's death, wasn't it? That there's the grievous wound, but there was no way out for him. So it was it was just a case of, oh, well, he's going to die, isn't he? Oh, yeah, he is going to die. So he's dead. There was no, it wasn't instant death, was it? It was some kind no. of horrible, yeah. There was no way out of it. Horrible. I, I just, I'm not, I'm not, I don't know. I know there's, I know the, the fifth edition joke about, yeah, have a sandwich and you're fine again. Fifth edition probably is a bit silly for giving you too many hit points back. But there's a balance to be struck in a game for me. 
that kind of stimulation where you think, come on, that's just no fun at all. I mean, if your character gets a hip crushed and they're out for six months, well, you, you might as well might as well be dead. I think one one of them <laughs> recommends twelve months bed rest. So. Yeah, <laughs> oh, what's the where's the fun in that? Was the fun? I mean, I, I'm not sure. I'm not convinced. It's going to simulate something. Yeah, but it's a world of magic and dragons. What, what you decided to simulate injury, but you're not simulating anything else, are you? Yeah. Like, bothering. So that's my that's my first favourite rule: fatigue okay. and endurance. Yeah, fair enough. Even though it was, well, not fatigue and endurance, but the critical injury, grievous wounds, did did finish your beloved snaggle tooth. Okay. Name. Anyway, right. <laughs> the second, second bit. one: character creation. Character creation. Come on. I'm usually acquired to be more specific, but it's your first run out. I'm I'm not quite at the bar. No one's at the bar these days. So character creation is uh, relatively simple. Although we say that it's based on RuneQuest and uh, basic role-playing, it does do things uh, quite differently in that it doesn't have a stack of skills. You're not faced on your character sheet with a, a load of skills. Most things are resolved by attribute multipliers, rolling them as a percentage. You've got the standard core attributes, apart from anything relating to your intelligence. They're all physical uh, representations, you know, apart from willpower, which is, I suppose, your spirit. But the the idea is that you role play, that all those characteristics and personality came from the player and wasn't represented numerically. But it does give you some elements to play with and one of those is birthrights you roll uh, on a table to see which star sign what you fall fall under and where you where you are in your family's pecking order and so the star sign is interesting because it gives you a mechanical benefit if your stars are aligned at a particular point so you get advantages at the point and disadvantages at certain points on the calendar that calendar isn't really explained anywhere, but I do I do like the idea of that. It's quite a nice idea, actually. That yeah, isn't it? Quite a nice idea that yeah, that there's kind of the cos the cosmos is working for and against you, which is exactly what people in that kind of world would believe. Because often games games sometimes don't do that. They have, they have people these people would have all these beliefs, but it has no bearing on the game but it is sometimes nice that those beliefs have a, do have a bearing on people. Although it doesn't have um, skills, strictly speaking, it does have professions. So you can choose specialised skills. And so there's not just like, you know, you, you don't get them for climbing, for example, but you, you could be an astrologer or you could be a, a military scientist. Military scientist is a good one because one of the advantages of a military scientist on the team is that they're able to hit the pause button during a combat so you can discuss tactics. Military metagame scientist. So you can do a, <laughs> do a roll on the skill and they can stop the action and say, right, well, you do that, you do that, and you can sort it all out that way. And there's lots of neat little skills like that that are unusual and they're not straightforward. Um, well, it's kind of weird. The military scientist is weird because it assumes a certain style of play, doesn't it? Where you're not allowed to do that. No well, conferring, I, no conferring a university challenge combat. I did insist on that when I ran the game. With the with these skills, 
And the other thing I like about them is that they're not always expressed as a percentage. Understanding that if you're trained in a particular thing, so if you're a machinician, for example, so you can deal with machinery, you can do things without necessarily having to roll for them because it's assumed you can do them because that's what you're trained in. Um, if you're a navigator, you, you you can have mastery of a particular size ship based on your rank and that kind of thing. And the way that it deals with those dice rolls is interesting as well, because you have a, a, a chance of doing it based on an attribute multiplier. And then again, you have quality of result. So it kind of hints at, but it doesn't use these words. It doesn't use these words. So I'm not putting words into the um, rule book's mouth, so to speak. But if you roll under, then it's obviously a, a success. If you roll equal to, you've got an opportunity for one of your companions to intervene. I mean, how often does that happen? But there you go. <laughs> if you roll above the skill, but within the same scope of your attributes. So say you have to, you've got a, a willpower of 10 and the games master said, right, it's a multiplier of five. So you get 50. If you roll 51 to 60, so it's within the scope of your your attribute, it's a success, but so it's a, it's a fair, it's a failure, but it's kind of a fail forward the way that it's described in the book it's not quite because i'm i'm imposing language for modern games but kind of get a result that you want but there's a consequence yeah. to it it's kind of it groping towards those modern concepts of yeah. failing forward and success but but doesn't yeah. quite say it because you know it's not it's not quite there yet as a yeah. concept in gaming and then if you're 30 percent above the target then things go badly wrong now, I have to say, if you're playing this on Roll20, there's a character sheet that's available for it, and it's all uh, working up. I suspect that it's not quite random because it does give you extreme results, that character sheet. Yeah. You're going from 0, 1 to 100 every other time. So I, if you listen to this podcast regularly, you'll know. I don't understand macros. I don't know how it works, but there's... Something adrift in those macros, I would suggest. We, we, yeah, we, we don't know how they work, but we know what we like. We always yeah. suspect funny old algorithms. So yeah, random. <laughs> so, so creating characters in uh, Dragon Quest is pretty quick, and it's quite fun. The other thing to say about it as well, it's a point system. So you roll to see how many points you get. You know, the higher points you have, the uh, lower the cap good as well. So that's a bit of a fantasy trip thing. So you don't roll for each individual attribute. You can distribute them. And with point systems, I'm never sure because it always feels like uh, putting together flat pack furniture, doesn't it? You always have a bit left over. A few points <laughs> left over, you don't know where they, where they should go. Never quite decide. Yeah. Yeah. But, what's, your, what's your feeling though about about it? There being no intelligence and no charisma in the game, and that always just strike me as an odd thing. That I think in general, I think in general, uh, because we have those things and we play games with them, and you know that there are certain situations where you want the game to resolve charisma and intelligence situations mm. that it you do you do need it. However. I'm perfectly happy to accept circumstances where you just have an idea of what the character is and what the idea the character might might think and to role play it. I'm I'm on the fence with it. This is why I'm not good as a judge. 
Yeah, you see, I'm not on the fence. I don't <laughs> I don't like it. I like to have an intelligence and a charisma style statistic. I think it's slightly unfair. It's an unfair way of running a game because you know, you your character what your character can be stupid. Character can be uncharismatic. Or your character could be charismatic, but as a player you you think, How do I convey charisma? I might not be particularly charismatic. You know, in the same way that I might not be strong, but my character's strong. It just seems a I find it quite unsatisfactory that there's none of that in it. I'm not sure if saying role play it is 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 adequate. You should role play, but there are times when you say, "Can my can my character remember their way out of this dungeon?" Well, yeah, a clever character can make a role and remember their way out. A dumb character might get lost for another few rounds trying to find the way. Those things matter, I think, in a game just as much as can my character lift this bar or push this door open. I'd like to remind you for this program only that I am sitting in judgment. You you are on the you yeah, can, yeah, we you sit, in judge, you sit on the fence if you're in judgment. <laughs> Imagine if I did that every time. What would you be saying? I anyway, down, I put down my gavel and I'm gonna wave my hand at you. And I'm gonna wave that one through. <laughs> Third one, colleges of magic. Colleges of magic. Okay. Now, when you got this game and it came out of the box and made that satisfying fart noise that it makes when the lid goes down and you we look through this when i uh, look at a rule book the first thing that i look at is the monsters because the monsters give you a sense of the world mm. but in this book it wasn't the monsters that caught my eye it was the demons the dukes and the princes and the mm. devils that i detailed in here that if you are a member of the College of the Greater Summonings, you can call upon these demons and bargain with them and uh, bring them into death. Uh, and that, that was the scenario that I uh, did in the world of the sword and the sorcerer. It was uh, an opportunity to go to Zeusia's caves and bring forth Dantalion, the Duke of Faces, for him to do the bidding to retrieve the three-bladed sword. The, the magic is so evocative and so interesting that I, you know, my obsession over the past few months with uh, Dragon Quest has been about this uh, magic. Now, I have to say that mechanically, it's quite difficult to cast a spell. It is quite difficult to cast a spell. It's percentage based. You build it up. And there's two types of uh, magic generally. There's general magic, so general knowledge, act like cantrips. And then you have specialised magic, depending on which college that you attend to. There are all different elements that come together and play together to make the magic work. The things, some colleges are incompatible with each other. Some colleges have particular rituals and particular particular components for spells that they need to seek to improve the chance of uh, doing it. And I love it. I love all that. I love all that. On the other hand, though, it goes from the sublime to the ridiculous. Some of these spells, they vary from to do tracking to being able to turn somebody to stone. So <laughs> there's not a lot in between. Nothing in between. <laughs> it's a very minor spell to something cataclysmic <laughs> or middle ground. So even some of the specialist magic are a bit, well, is that all it does? It's good because it's that old school thing of they leave the games master to determine 
the effects of a spell. So you can see that there'd be loads of arguments about these spells when they were cast yeah. and what they were capable of, because it, it just leaves it to you to work it out. It goes into great detail. detail yeah, great detail and, about some things, but then just at the crucial point where you really need a bit of guidance, it's just like, <laughs> it's up to you. Yeah, it's up to you. Just like quite, I, I must, when I read the magic, I, one thing I quite like is the idea that cold iron inhibits magic. It's yes. quite clever, isn't it? Where they they sort of say the idea, which is one of, it's one of these ideas that has knocked around in D and D for years, wasn't it? Oh, wizards can't use armor because metal affects magic. But it's it is more specific in this game, isn't it? It does have a paragraph in or two about li- liquid metal is fine, but once metal is is cast and it's cold cold iron, it it inhibits magic. So you basically were saying if you're a spell user, you can't wear metal armor because it's it's not. It's not going. It's going to. Well, you can, but it's going to inhibit your magic and stop your magic, which yeah. is kind of quite. It's quite clever because you think, yeah, that gives you a bit of game balance. Casting spells is quite difficult, though. Even some of the kind of fanciful ones that don't really do very much. It is quite difficult to. Uh, it doesn't do very much and can still be disappointing when it doesn't yeah. work. You know, I was saying uh, how if you roll over by thirty percent in general, your target number in general, something bad happens. Well, in this. Um, spells can backfire they can backfire cumulatively so you can <laughs> keep casting spells and be affected by the the backfiring because we've as i say we've been playing this on um, roll 20 with those very swingy results they're backfiring all the bloody time Never <laughs> can cast. imagine yeah <laughs> yeah i know what you mean i have a to magic does it has a, it's quite a lot of magic in it and it is quite evocative. It does, like the demon summoning and all the other stuff, some of it does bring to mind Kaikon and Alankmar and that kind of world, I think, doesn't it, to some extent? Yeah. Brings the, about that kind of fantasy world. The the magic users seem esoteric, strange, mm. unusual. Yeah. They don't behave like a standard human being. They're By their very nature, the way that they're described, they're kind of elevated from humans, the you know, mm. standard humans. And not necessarily corrupted by um, the magic that they do, but the routines are different from your normal people. The I think the it, the, the way it handles it is, is is really good. I think it's one of the plus points, and you can spend hours reading those demons and what they're capable of. And each one of those <laughs> demons or dukes or princes, you could write a scenario around easily. Which is always a good thing when a game does that, I think. When when it, when you read the monsters or magic section of a game and it starts to fire off scenario ideas, that's a definite plus with any game. In some ways, despite all the rules and the pros and cons of any rule system, the one thing you do need is ideas. Okay. So, so we, we now come on to, and you, you cannot be judgy now because this is, this is something you don't like. You rank. don't like rank. Rank is rank, apparently. Rank is rank. And do you know... I don't, <laughs> I'm going to sit on the fence a little bit here and say, I don't think there's anything fundamentally wrong. You're fired. It. You're fired. <laughs> I'm firing. I want my job back. I don't think there's anything fundamentally wrong with uh, rank. Why did you pick it then? <laughs> it's because it's the devil's own job to find out what it actually is in the rules. <laughs> so you can't judge it too harshly because you don't know what it is. <laughs> yeah, fair I'm, a, I'm not quite. <laughs> <laughs> We, we need to we need to address the uh, elephant in the room that is the uh, style of these um, rule books. It's a combination between um, the warranty conditions on the hot point washing machine and a legal disposition because 
refuses to repeat any information. So the paragraphs are numbered. And so it's like a choose your own adventure. You, If you want to find out how a spell works, you might have to look on two other different pages. So, you know, it'll go, a spell with putrescence, okay. So this has the same effect as a spell with the same name. G2, page 57, okay. I'll go to page 57, G2. I won't be a minute. We'll find out what this putrescence does in a moment. Uh, uh, I'm gone. I I can't find it because there's no index. There's no index in the uh, book. Um, That's the other other thing. Um, But... So if you went looking for tell me how rank works in this game, you will not find a paragraph that describes how rank yeah. works yeah. in this game. What rank is, is you spend expend your um, experience points to increase your rank in skills. Yeah, I saw that. I've seen, I've seen that, yeah. yeah. So you have a best chance of uh, doing something, but you can increase your chance by um, gaining experience points and improving your rank in particular um, skills or combat, combat ability or spells. Uh, and for some uh, skills, you need to have a rank zero, which is like a passport into being able to get future, yeah. um, future skills in that area. And it behaves differently. Rank behaves differently. It's, it, it, it's trying to. It's not a levels-based uh, system. So you don't, as a character, on the whole. At first, I thought, oh, does this mean it's like it works like levels? But it doesn't work like levels because you've got levels in effect on each individual skill, which is determined by this rank. And then the rank uh, is then multiplied, and that multiplication is different for so it, there's like individual formula for each different occurrence of it and, and and how it's applied is different in different circumstances i just think it's um it's a rule that tries to show, give your character progression and to make your character become more experienced but because it's so difficult to it's so nebulous in the in the rule yeah. book and trying yeah, to find to- Pin, pin down, down quite quite what it means and what it is and yeah. you do sometimes get that in games particularly older games where it's almost like the concepts in there and it's mentioned so much they think well it must be it's obvious because it's mentioned so much but they never actually get around to actually giving you a paragraph that explains exactly what it is and exactly what it does yeah yeah it's just kind of embedded in but but you can't quite find the I sort of get it, but don't quite get it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, I know what you mean. So it's not that I don't like the rule. Because I don't just understand the ex- it. The enough. explanation of the rule or lack of explanation is what is yeah. frustrating about the game yeah. rather than the actual. It might be a brilliant rule, but you're not quite sure what it is. Not quite yeah. sure what the rule is. And I am applying, you know, in the games I've been playing, I've been using it because it's not con- it's not consistently applied across the the rules and it does different things in different circumstances yeah i'm not i'm I'm not convinced it's it's there in my head i've got my version of it that i've compiled from uh piecing together the different paragraphs that i've found that that is a i mean that is an interesting thing isn't it it's an interesting experience because that was the experience back in the day back in the day you, you would get a game and when things weren't entirely clear, you would give your own interpretation of it. 
and that's what you went with and yeah. and because you lived in a you, <laughs> you lived in relative rpg isolation back then that was the way you did it you, d- you didn't really encounter anyone else who played the games so you just went with your interpretation of it really didn't you yeah you know yeah that's you know and i'm sure back in the day i i probably did that when i was running it i probably came up with an interpretation of rank and applied it whether it's your interpretation or whether it was correct we'll never know it's lost in the midst of time but yeah that is a strange thing about not just about older games but the way that you you interpreted rules back then if you're unsure about a rule you know with the internet and and twitter and all sorts of things you, you could ask people and people would have a discussion about it and make it clear but back then you were in isolation weren't you i bought that game read the rules and thought okay this is this is what I think, and this is what we'll go with. Yeah. But whether that's that's accurate or not is yeah. anyone's guess. So on the on the face of it, it's a it's a fairly complicated uh, rule book. It's pretty, pretty com- complicated with the spot rules. There's lots of uh, different things going on, but it's one of those games that when you actually get into playing it, it's not as difficult as it appears. The combat is fast and furious yeah it it moves it moves quickly i do think that it's rich in detail and um character elements and there's lots to get your teeth into um when 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 you're playing it it's unlike many of the other games that we've talked about in these podcasts in that it's one of those that hasn't really been revived so Mm. this, this is a second edition I've been playing. You had the first edition, which is slightly different, probably more complicated than this one. It was reprinted at the end of the 80s because TSR bought SPI and they released a, a, it was just like a reprint that they did. I think it was just to retain the um, name and the brand. But beyond that, it's not, it's not done anything. I mean, it's not, there are the diehard fans out there. There are mm. websites that have loads of materials. They're talking about the mysterious Steve Jackson US world builder module that was never published because when TSR mm. got it, they didn't really do anything with it. They didn't really know what to do with uh, SBI's products. So a lot of them uh, withered on the vine. And of course, Dragon Quest is um, some manga computer game. No, so as well. All oh, right. Okay. No, yeah. So if you if you if you if you put Dragon Quest in there, it brings up. Yeah, you can get something. You think, well, this is popular. I don't something entirely different, really. And I think it, as well, there's probably some confusion with um, the uh, Dragon uh, Anne McCaffrey. It did, Anne McCaffrey, that's it. Yeah, get conf- get confused with the Anne McCaffrey um, book of the same name, which that's never had uh, been an IP that's been a. Uh, an RPG. So whether, you know, whether the time is right for uh, Dragon Quest to revive, you know, because, you know, it's got its fans who are slightly obsessive. <laughs> <laughs> you become you sucker, in, haven't you? Starting another cult. <laughs> it is, I, I mean, when I looked at the rules, when we, when we played it, when we played it, you're right, playing it, it was okay, it wasn't. You know, and it it did work quite well. Like you say, the combat was worked quite well, and the the fatigue and the endurance rules made it made it interesting in terms of how it how it played out. You know, there's no problem. I do find it endlessly fascinating to kind of 
look back on that that young those younger versions of ourselves reading these games and the older version of myself reading them now and that that younger version read that game in a completely unquestioning way i, I didn't read it at that age and go oh, this is hard work I, I accepted that that hard work was part of a role-playing game that was par for the course yeah these games were difficult and you better be prepared to read some difficult stuff. Whereas nowadays, things that are difficult, I, I'm critical of. I think, oh, well, why they made it so difficult? Why is it so well? Why is it expressed in this awkward way? You know, I demand much more from a rule book. I demand much more from a game and the way it's a bit like you said about no index, no, you know, all these sending you here, there, and everywhere. You're kind of quite demanding, aren't we, about, and rightly so, I suppose. And we've mentioned this before about things like Aftermath the moral project but those were games that we didn't play back in the day this is a game we did play that i bought and read and ran and you played and when i look back at it now i think that's that's tough going that it's tough going yeah. that isn't it to yeah. think you know that when it's a game that you've actually actually played and you actually tried to understand and i've been using it is now <laughs> well, before i pass over the wig, the gavel, and the whole get-up. Yes. I need to just pass one last judgment. Dragons should not have hair. By yes, order. The, By the, order. The cover. Mm. Yeah. 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 Okay. So I'm going to hand this over uh, because I didn't, like, I didn't like the responsibility, really. It's, it's harder no. than it looks, isn't it? It is harder than it looks. I'm glad you appreciate that. Now. <laughs> Hello, this is Gaz. And this is Baz. We're your genial, some might even say a funkular hosts of What Would The Smart Party Do podcast. Where you'll find a special blend of gaming chat, quality interviews, deep dive reviews, advice, war stories and the occasional splash of actual play. So, draw up a comfy chair, get a brew going and join the Smart Party. Level up your gaming mojo at whatwouldthesmartpartydo.com or find us on iTunes, Spotify and all other reputable purveyors of podcasts. Oh, get me caught! Hello, welcome to a brand new segment of the podcast. This is called I'll Get My Caught. I'll Get Me Caught. And the idea of this is it's the closing time chatter that we have around the table when we go around to Eddie's. For some reason, we put our coat, scarf and hat, even in the middle of summer, and we stand around the table at the end of a game and we start to talk about stuff that's happened. It's the only real kind of talk we have, isn't it? Mm. But it's not determined by a dice roll. So, Blythe, what's been tickling your fancy? Well, this week I received uh, the new edition of Deadlands Kickstarter box set. Box set. With a, box ooh, set. Yeah, boxed. Is, that's the thing, isn't it? It's in a box. I backed it. About April last year, about the Kickstarter, new new version of the Weird West book, you know, the, the, the guide to it, all in one book. That's nice. And they were quite keen on these Games Masters players splits that they do. You know, the old one was the Marshall's Guide and the Player's Guide, but you, you couldn't get couldn't get the Player's Guide for, for loving the money. Kind of nice in the same format as the Savage Worlds, new Savage Worlds rules, which so is smaller format. Um, and you get the Weird West Companion as a little stretch goal. And you get a box set with a map and cards and a Games Master screen. 
Savage Worlds, get, Savage Worlds has loads of bits, doesn't it? So you get loads yeah, and loads you, of bits. You get it. loads of bits. You get bits. You get you get even get dice in the box. You get little gambling chips for bennies, things like that. But the fact it's all in a box is somehow it, get, it did say the box set, but in my head I thought is that just a turn of phrase? It won't actually be in a box, but it is. Came all the way from Knoxville, Tennessee, all the way from America in a box. The game about the Wild West, all the way from America. In a, in a really nice box. That's it's slightly magical. So recently I appeared on Frankenstein's RPG talking about initiative. Initiative's only interesting if um, something exciting happens as a result of it. So it's like a quick draw or something like that. Yeah. So with the um, old Savage Worlds game, when we played that, the Deadlands game, you played poker, didn't you, to determine who was the quickest draw? You do a do a poker hand. Does it use the same mechanic, or has that it's been updated? Similar, but not not it doesn't really use poker. It, it's more. It, it's not quite like blackjack, but you you get a hand of cards. So you draw in a gunfight. I think you get a, a you get a card, and you look at the card, and then certain talents get you extra cards. And then you play your highest card to see who shoots first in the end. There's several rounds of getting cards. So it's a little bit simpler, really, because, the, yeah, you're right, the old version, it was poker hands. And although it told you in the rules what which poker hands beat which ones, it confused a few people. Because if you're not familiar with poker hands, you're a little bit like, what beats what? It still works with cards. And it works very well because it's there's a kind of tension, isn't there, with you getting cards and you know your opponent's got cards and you're thinking, you know, they got a better hand than me because this all hangs on who's going to draw first. That's the only time that initiative's interesting. So go so, on, what's, what's tickled your fancy? I'm back on the magazines. I'm back on the magazines again, by the <laughs> Told you about that. I appeared on the Smart Party uh, podcast to talk about 90s magazines and I've been looking at uh, fanzines. I've recently read The Elusive Shift by John Peterson, which tells the story of how role-playing became role-playing, how there was a paradigm shift between uh, the wargaming and how it hit the amateur press and science fiction scene, science fiction convention scene, and became a role-playing and the the kind of tensions and the interplay and discussions that took place in the fanzines in the 70s. And I've been chatting about it and I've been sent this. It's a magazine, a fanzine that ran ran for quite a while at the back end of the uh, 80s and it was edited by Paul Mason. And uh, Vaughan Allen, one of the uh, Grog Squad, has sent me... uh, three copies of it and i've been looking through it this one here is from 1987 and it's it's the pinnacle of chat to do with the 80s uk (laughs) role playing at that time so what was the obsession for us role players in 86 87 the old myth that brian ansell bombed my chippy you know the old thing that yeah that one that the megacorp of Games yeah. Workshop was consuming the hobby, turning it from a cottage industry into this megalith, this monolithic organisation that absorbed everything. Imagine had a very elevated view of the hobby. I remember this from the time that they called it role gaming. Role gaming. So, so we are role gamers. 
and and, and we were the same. We, we we're mocking it now, but at this point we were the same. To distinguish the elevated role playing that we did compared with the young munchkins who were coming into the hobby. Yeah, yeah. Playing the playing the Warhammer. We were experimenting with lo- lofty things like narrative and things like that. Yes, yes, yeah. What Ansel was doing at this point was starting to impose some business, getting realistic with what was uh, possible. And Paul Mason's coming from the point of view that we had. And so Mason says, so how many people do you do you employ? And he says, well, it's less than 200. We're only a medium-sized company. We're not a mega corporation. We've got the turnover equivalent to a large garage large garage (laughs) so this was in 1986 and last year games workshop surpassed the utility companies yes in in the market value in the in the uh, turnover and profitability yeah astonishing isn't it the size of a petrol station to go a petrol station and now now it's selling more than no, he owns Shell. the oil field. He owns the oil fields now. So Blythe, we'll head out now. We won't feel yep. the benefit because we've had our court on. Yeah. When are you going to book in playing Deadlands? I, I think it's going to have to be our first game round round the table at Eddie's, isn't it? It's going to have to be. I'm going to have to use all that paraphernalia, aren't I? This time next this, year. This time next year, a couple of years or something like that, yeah. It was sitting in a biohazard seat with his newly extended kitchen table so we can be... Shouting. or well, not shouting. Don't shout. With, with the windows Whispering. open. No well-ventilated room. I think I've got a jack of hearts. No, sorry. A joker. Do you know what? I've never had a joker in any, any game of Deadlands we've ever played, right, so far. We've played a lot of Deadlands, haven't we? A yeah. lot of Deadlands online. I'd say we played more Deadlands than anything these last couple of years. Not not Deadlands, rather, Savage Worlds, but in various guises. I've never had a joker. I once got a jack I once got a jack and nearly fell off my chair thinking it was a joker and realised oh it's a jack. It says with a J, but it's not a joker, is it? No. I never had a joker in Savage Game of Savage Worlds. We played all those games with Gaz, we played all those with Steve. I, I, I've even run them. I never got a joker for the bad guys either when I ran it. Never had a joker. Have a Benny on me. See you next time. See you. Thank you to Chris for the interview. Thanks too to Colin Spears for being my Dragon Quest Gamesmaster for the past few months and to Steve Rumney for passing on his copy of Dragon Quest a few years ago because he hated it so much. As uh, someone said, one man's trash is another man's treasure and all that. Thank you for your patience in waiting for this podcast in March 2021. Got a bit caught up with organising virtual grog meet, which is due to take place on the 15th to the 18th of April. The tickets are generally available from the 2nd of April. Patrons have had priority access because we organise it for them. There are some really great games on offer this time. Also, there's a special recording of the first, last and everything with economist, journalist and podcaster Tim Harford. If you want to join the webinar, then follow the link in the show notes for registration. Thanks to everyone 
who's given us support by listening to this, subscribing and passing it on. It's really appreciated. We've had some new patrons who's joined in investing in the Grognard Files in December, January and February. And I said that I would reach for the Enchanted Wood to roll for a virtual gift. And that was the first scenario pack for Dragon Quest. It was written by Janelle Jacquees and she said it was the best scenario that she produced. I thought I had it, but I don't. So instead, we're headed to the frontiers of Elusia. I'm going to grant lands to these patrons using the powers invested in me by no one. Thank you to the new Fancy Poof patrons, Thomas Edward, Stephen Eyre, Michael Hunter, Benjamin Klein, Marjen, Rage Makers, Richard Gavin, Laurie Kudstall, James Child and Jack Scott. Thank you. At the sofa so good level, this is where we roll on our table, apparently at random, to award somewhere from the frontiers of Elusia. So let's start with Joseph Procopio. Now he's organising the ScrumCon online on the 24th to the 25th of April. And I'm a guest running the Legion of Gold for Gamma World. And he's given the Barrister Holding. Steph 1885 can now set up stead at the Wilderness of Gilani. Stephen Lee is set to spend time with the College of Air Magics in Ildra's home. Shane McLean, he gets the Mucklands with its evil reputation. Michael Gunn, he gets to settle in the mountains of Marbeck. Alex Green, he lays his hat at the Gatar Depression. And Mr. Electric Flipping Bastion Land, Chris McDowell, he finds his home at Dolphin Bay, which I'm pretty sure is a circuit for Wave Race 64. Terry Boone, he's to be found at the fixed abode of Kestrel Ridge. Andrew McLaren is now defining his time at the Barons of Sith. Stephen Andrews is looking over his shoulder at Superstition Mountains. Okay, the next level is the winged back chair. Max is now at the Filgasso Forest. Shane M is finding solace in Angar Wood. And the top level is the contour rug level. One of those semicircular things that posh people put around their loose. So first up is Christian Lindg. And he gets the Vale of Morin, which is haunted by ghosts. And Alberto Cairo, he gets the Plain of Desai, where you'll find Bolton Bay. Michael Kettlewood rides the plains of Swithin's Rufflands. And finally, Jeremy Gilbert, who has been very supportive, sending comments that have got me through this month. So thank you, Jeremy. And you can have the Barony of Karzala. Now, you may think somehow that we've missed a month of podcasting, but this is merely a timey-wimey distortion that will be corrected. The next Grog Pod will come very soon, once we've settled the debate. 
Who is the most suitable assistant for John Pertwee in Exile scenario? Is it Joe Grant or Sarah Jane? Until we've worked that out. Ad e as amigos. Yeah.